Well, I, thank, I want to thank you for the opportunity to, to be here. Uh, you may remember I was here about five weeks ago, and uh, I asked the children to count the number of times it said, but God. And uh, today I have a similar assignment to the children uh, to count the number of times it says, but you. Um, as you notice that's the sermon title. You might count first the times in the scripture reading when we come across that phrase, but you. And then in the sermon, uh, is I use but you, or sometimes the longer form is, but as for you. Uh, but it's really the, the same idea. And just uh, count the number of times in the, in the scripture reading and then in the sermon. Uh, for our scripture reading, we'll find uh, in First Timothy 6, uh, beginning with verse 6 and going on to verse 16, and then uh, turning over to chapter, two of sec- uh, chapter 3 of 2 Timothy. Uh, it's found on page 1365 uh, in the Pew Bible. And this is uh, the word of God, inerrant and infallible. Here's God's word uh, to us this morning. 1 Timothy 6, beginning with verse 6. Now godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry out nothing. Nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness, and pierce themselves through with many sorrows. But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold of eternal life to which you are also called and have confessed a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I urge you in the sight of God, who gives life to all things, and before before Christ Jesus, who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ's appearing which he will manifest in his own time. He was blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. And turning over into Second Timothy, in chapter 3, begin with verse 10 and go on to chapter 
4, verse 4. But you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, but evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you've learned them, and that from the childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. I charge you, therefore, before God and before the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort, with all long-suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they in turn, their ear, they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you, be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Sometimes as uh, Rachel and I are driving down the road, we'll see an advertising sign, and uh, our reaction will be pretty similar. What did that sign say? Because uh, maybe the color scheme was a dark background, uh, a bright red, and then in these fancy lettering of gray, there'll be something written. You're maybe even looking for the business, but you can't even read it. Or you go to a home and you're looking for a particular number and you don't realize until a few minutes it's engraved in the, in the bricks and you have to kind of look very carefully. It seems like it's almost camouflaged. And then finally you see, oh, down over there, carved into the brick is the number. And if you think about those things, they're not really fulfilling their purpose. Why they were made. They're made to to catch our attention, to give information. But the way they are is you can't really 
even see them and see them well and they're really useless not fulfilling their purpose when you can't see the sign or you can't find the house that you're looking for well as Christians we're to stand out in comparison to the world to be a living contrast to them in terms of our thinking and in terms of what we do. And the Apostle Paul, as he's writing to his son in the faith, Timothy, is really making that point. And it's found in two words. But you. The Greek is sude. Some of you may have heard those words before. But you, the world thinks this way. The world acts this way. The world talks this way. The world is pursuing this. But you are to be different. You're to stand out. You're to be a contrast with what the world does and what the false teachers are saying. The world is thinking one thing, it's acting in a certain way, the false teachers as well. But you, you, Timothy, are to be completely different. You're to be a living contrast. And each one of us, as we're believers, you and I are called to be that living contrast. We've been redeemed for a purpose. And that purpose is to glorify God by living to a different standard, in a different way, in a way that contrasts with the world. And so the first point, our starting point, as we think about this, is is found there in 1 Timothy 6.11, where we read, But as for you, or but you, O man of God. And there are two key ideas that are found there. The first is Timothy at this point is called a man of God. Now other places he's called, you know, my beloved son in the faith. By the Apostle Paul, later on in verse 20, he's called by name, O Timothy. But here, what is being emphasized is his relationship with God. That you are a man of God. It's pointing to your standing as having a special relationship with God. Now, it's a a term that has a rich Old Testament background. Man of God. There, There were ten men that were used this term was used in the Old Testament. And some of them were the very greatest of Old Testament heroes, the giants of the faith. And so the first one that's called a man of God is, is Moses. And he's called that by Joshua. And then you have Daniel. Or I mean, sorry, David. was called man of God. And, and Samuel and the great prophets Elijah. And Elisha. 
And we can think about those men and how big they are on the pages of the Old Testament. But then you have a couple others who are maybe not so well known. The prophet Shemaiah. You may not even remember who he is, but he is the prophet when the kingdom divided and the north and the south were going to go to war and he goes out and says in the name of God, you can't attack your brothers. Go back home. And they do. And then next is Igdalia, the leader of the Rechabites, who Jeremiah commends. That is, he commands his descendants not to settle in cities, not to grow crops, they're to be living in tents and, and, and taking care of sheep and not to drink wine. They've done that. And he's called a man of God. A man concerned for God. A man belonging to God. But the most interesting thing to me is there are three men that are called men of God who we don't even know who they are. The first one is, uh, is found in, in, in 1 Samuel. Uh, it tells us that a man of God came to Eli and rebuked him for the fact that he didn't control his sons. His sons were worthless men and they, he didn't correct them. And this man of God says, they're going to die. Same day. In judgment against their wickedness. And in those instances, what's important is not the name of the individual or not whether he was a prophet or not, or anything like that. We know nothing about them, except that he was a man of God. And that was important. And the world may not know you. And you'll maybe never be on the nightly news. But the crucial thing is, are you a man of God? Are you a woman of God? Are you a boy or a girl of God? That is what we should desire. And so these others, we don't know what tribe they were from, what other things they did in service to God in his kingdom, but that they were men of God. Now, as you think about that phrase, man of God, it really implies ownership. Someone who belongs to God. Someone who's been purchased by God. And of course, as we look in the New Testament, we see that Jesus Christ is our kingsman redeemer who purchased us by his blood, who's given us freedom by his atonement. And so as we've done so, our purpose is to glorify and to serve him to show by our actions and by our words that we truly do belong to God. We're one of Christ. And so, as Paul addresses Timothy here as man of God, he's, he's reminding him and really all of us that that's the standard. 
We're to be striving to be men and women, boys and girls of God. Those who give of themselves to serve God. That have new, new goals, new ambitions, new attitudes, new, new desires, new hopes. Because we belong to God. He has purchased us by Christ. Well, the second phrase there in 1 Timothy 6, 11 is, but you. But you. The Greek is very simple. Two, two words with uh, two letters each, su and de. You, but, as it is in the, the Greek order. Sometimes translated a little longer, but as for you. It implies a strong contrast. There's others who are living in a much different way. They're living according to the world standards. They're living as uh, nominal Christians, but you are to be different. You are to stand out. You know, Timothy, you're not to go along with everybody else. Christian, you're not to go along. And be like everyone else. And one thing to keep in mind is that word you, the Sue, is singular. A lot of the New Testament, those verbs are plural. And in the Greek as well as the Hebrew, you can tell whether it's singular or plural. Was it just the individual meant to reflect on this personally? Or is it something that's corporate? And quite a number of them are corporate as we th- read about singing to one another and, and some other things. That It's a corporate life. That we're not uh, always on our own struggling. But here's one of those times where the emphasis is on you. How are you living? What are you deciding? How do you think about your life as it's been redeemed by Christ? And it's in stark contrast to the world and to the false teachers. You and I are called to be radically different. And but you highlights that contrast. Which then brings us to our second point. What is the lifestyle and the thinking that is being decisively rejected? Because in that but you, it's implied there's a lifestyle, there's a way of thinking that you reject. And we need to notice, first of all, it's, it's to be decisively rejected. In verse 11 again, flee these things. And we'll look at what those things are. But the first word there, the command is flee. And if you think about that word, that command, it doesn't mean, well, I'll just sort of ignore what's going on in the world. Or I'm just going to meander around here for a little while and try to maybe move myself a little bit further away from the world and what it does, uh, inch by inch. 
If you arrive home and get out of your car and, and there's a lion coming down the street, what do you do? How many would say, oh, I see a dandelion, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull it out. You flee into your home. You'd want to be in a place of safety. Second thing we can notice is whenever we see that word, but you, there's a very a contrasting lifestyle and a very different way of, of thinking that's being presented. Look at uh, in chapter 6. Is it talking about the false teachers? What, is the, what are they like? They deviate from the truth, from the healthy words. The words that will bring spiritual health, which is really the gospel, the word of God. They be, bring divisions to the church. They're lovers of money. They're coveting. And Timothy and we are to stand firmly against such ungodliness. And then going on to, uh, to 2 Timothy, we find that same pattern. If you go back to 3, 5 that we didn't read, it says, avoid such people. You know, we're to stay away from them. And who are the people that are being talked about? What characterizes them? Well, it's not a very pretty picture as we go through, down the list of characteristics. They're lovers of self. Well, how much today are people encouraged that they need to be loving themselves? I need to love myself. I need to take care of myself. Lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving God. Treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, opposing the truth. It's not a pretty picture. But there's so many around us that are like that. And we're to live in contrast in the final description in verse 13 talks about evil people and imposters, whether it's outside in the world or those who'd be false teachers and follow after them. The evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. They'll be deceiving others while they themselves are deceived. And so with the help of the Holy Spirit, we're to be a contrast. We're to be avoiding these things. We're to be avoiding people who do this. Which then brings us to our third point. What is the lifestyle and the thinking that we are to embrace? Because we're not only called, don't do this, don't be involved in that, don't think this way, but we're also called to be different, to be a contrast. And we might notice, first of all, that it's just as vigorously done as the fleeing away. First Timothy 6.11 says, pursue. And that Greek word pursue 
can even sometimes in, in context mean persecute. To fall so, so hard and with so much fervor, if it's in the wrong way, it's a persecution. It implies strenuous effort, resolve, endurance, exertion, a single-mindedness in our devotion to Christ and our glorifying of him. Think about the examples of, of people pursuing something around us. How they strain all that they are. Maybe to become president of the United States. Maybe to become a, a professional athlete. Maybe to become famous or to become rich. Those are not worthy goals for your life. Sure, it'd be great to be president, but if that's all you accomplish, you haven't accomplished enough with your life. As one belonging to Christ, you're to pursue godliness with all of your being. Secondly, we can look at the list of things that are to be pursued. In 1 Timothy 6, righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life. Keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach. And then going on uh, to 2 Timothy 4, 5, we say, in contrast to those who are, who are not listening to the truth, who are wayward, following after myths, as for you, and again, it's but you, Sude, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of evangelist, fulfill your ministry. And that last one is just sort of a general thing. Anything that really involves godliness, even though I haven't named it, it's included. Because if you look at the list and say, well, you never mentioned prayer, well, it's there. It's all part of your ministry. It's all part of what you do as a Christian. And this is all done... And our motivation is keeping in mind the second coming of Christ. Because there in First, uh, first Timothy, uh, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, and, and Second Timothy 4, I charge you in the presence of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing. They're mindful that... Uh, yeah, there can be success in this world. But we're thinking ultimately of what happens after this world ends. After our life here is no more. And so Timothy and we are to live as a contrast in light of the second coming of Christ. Third thing you can note is that uh, there's also the light from the past. 
that we're to be considering. And uh, 1 Timothy 6.12 talks about the eternal life to which you are called. About which you are made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. To Timothy, as he's encouraged to be a man of God, to to live a, a contrasting life, is to recall what he's already seen happen in his life. And that word called points to God's initiation, God bringing him to himself. And then what was the result? Was he made this profession? And I know many of you have made a a profession. Some to the session when you became members. Some maybe when you were baptized. Some before the church as you were received in. To remember what that meant. And then in, in, in 3.1, uh, you, however, and it's really but you, have followed my teaching, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings. And then he goes on to name some places, Antioch and Iconium and Lystra. And Timothy was from Derby and Lister, from those two neighboring towns. And what was the persecution that happened to the apostle in Lystra? Well, they first received him as the gods, and we're going to offer sacrifices. Then they end up at after a time of taking Paul outside and stoning him. And leaving him for dead. And after they leave, he brushes himself off and goes his way. And perhaps Timothy was an eyewitness. He saw the stones being hurled at Paul. If he wasn't there, he surely would have heard of the events. It would have been the talk of the town. And even, he goes on to mention Timothy's own past, verse 14. What he had learned and firmly believed, and uh, you go back to uh, chapter 1, verse 5, and explain more that since your faith uh, that dwelt in your grandmother Lois, and your mother Eunice to hold on to those things. That what God has done in the past in our lives should be an encouragement to us to continue to be men and women of faith. You know, there may be some hardships, there may be some persecutions. But remember God's past mercies. Mature Christians can be a model to us of what it means to be a man or woman of God. I encourage you to read biographies of of famous Christians, of maybe noble missionaries or others, to be encouraged. 
What did they do to be a man or a woman of God? And fourthly, we see here that Timothy and we are to be constant in God's word. It's in contrast uh, to those who are deceived and being deceived, deceiving others, then in verse 14. But as for you, or but you, sude, what's the contrasting lifestyle to those who are being deceived, who are teaching false doctrine, unsound words, Continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed. And he talks then of the sacred writings. What we would call the Bible today. He's to continue in God's word. Others may focus on human philosophy and thinking what the latest fad is, what the latest theological fad that's out there. Uh, and maybe in terms of worship or Eastern religion or whatever it is. <clears throat> Timothy and all faithful Christians are to continue in God's word. And why? At the end of verse 15, it's able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Pop psychology conventional wisdom, the latest religious fad, can't give you the wisdom that's needed for salvation. It only comes through the work of God's spirit and word. It's a word, we're told, is inspired by God. It's literally breathed out by God. It comes from God to us. And as such, it's perfect. It contains all that we need to know for how to live, what we're to do, to direct our thoughts and our actions. And result in verse 17, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. And as I talked about man of God, you're perhaps thinking, well, those were notable examples of men of faith. You know, I'm not like that. But here in verse 17 is the only other reference to the man of God. And it's really talking generally to those who look to the word of God or in the word of God, who are accepting the word of God, they become useful. And so that's each one of us would believe be believers. And notice it says continue in the sacred writings. Continue in the Bible. Now, it might have said immerse yourself in the Bible. You know, a couple times a year you need to get away for two weeks, a month, and just spend... You know, time at some sort of monastery or Christian camp and, you know, read and study the Bible for six, eight, twelve hours a day. Spend it all in prayer and meditation and reading. 
I'm not saying you can't do that. But it's saying continue in the Bible. It's calling you and me to faithfulness each day. And so the importance is on daily devotions. You know, do you set aside some time in the day to read the Bible? Maybe a paragraph, maybe a chapter, maybe several chapters. But do you do that? Do you have family devotions? The time when there's a family, you, you gather around. And look at the scripture. If you have three-year-olds, it may not be very depth. But are you doing that? And then, of course, uh, the weekly worship. When you hear God's word explained and applied. And how many of us start, maybe eagerly, to, to read the Bible? I've known too many that have said, you know, started, I'm going to read through and started reading Genesis and then and Exodus, and then they get to Leviticus, and uh, the Sisks say, if, if you make it through Leviticus, you're going to make it all the way to the end 95% of the time. <laughs> but it's okay to switch over and read Matthew, and then come back sometime later to Leviticus. And we get busy, And it's maybe not as exciting as the first time that we read it and we begin to have our eyes open to see it. Continue in that word. Resist the temptation to fall away, to to maybe read, you know, exclusively books on theology which are good but are not a replacement for the word of God and so the application I think is uh, first one is very obvious continue in God's word what is your pattern of reading the word of God to make sure that that's a priority in your life, day by day by day. Two other applications. There's one other passage I didn't look at. This passage, you're not supposed to do this, but I will. Um, In 2 Timothy 2.1, it's not the exact same phrase. It's phrase, you therefore. Therefore, you. And it suggests two applications. Therefore, you be strengthened by the grace in Christ Jesus. That as you seek to be a man or woman of God, you need to be aware of how much you need God's grace. You need God working in your life. You don't become a man of God, a woman of God, a boy or girl of God by how much effort you exert. You're not to just grit your teeth and somehow it'll come about. You need God's grace to be active in your life. 
And so you should seek that. And then secondly, it goes on to say, entrust the gospel to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. The goal is not to be in scripture and become a man of God or a woman of God so that you can become a man of God or a woman of God at a fortress all by yourself. You know, that you're able to withstand the, the waves that would come and overwhelm. You know, the goal is that you would be helping others around you become a man or a woman, a child, boy or girl of God. And I know you're shortly going to begin uh, as a congregation this discipleship program. What a wonderful thing that is. It's really a, a fulfilling of First Timothy or Second Timothy two two to be helping others. You want a whole church filled with men and women of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we rejoice in your word and what it teaches us. Uh, the encouragement is that we're to, to be living contrasts uh, to the world, to the false professors of, of uh, of religion and even of Christianity at times. That as you have worked in our lives that we're to stand out. That we're to be so different in our thinking, our ambitions, our goals, uh, what we say and how we say it and in uh, our actions and our priorities that, that others can see that can see that we belong to you. By your grace, we ask that you would do so, that we would be men and women who build our lives on, on your word, who are constant in your word, who are faithfully pursuing a, a, a deeper relationship with you through your word and spirit. Help us to do so, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Turn, please, to Psalm 15, Selection A. I was glad that Ken didn't say too much as he started talking through the Psalms here because uh, one of the points I want to make is that uh, as you look at Psalm 14 and then Psalm 15, there's a real contrast here that we would expect between the one who's uh, not a man or woman of God, the fool, and what they do, and it's highlighted in, in, verse, uh, in Psalm 14 and now verse 15, the one who would be a man of God, who dwells with God, who knows God, and their lifestyle that shows that charge, char that change that's happened uh, in them.
So let's stand and sing the three stanzas, Psalm 15a. <laughs> 